This is Positive Parenting. Parenting expertise and advice from best-selling parenting author and national newspaper columnist, Mr. Dad, Armin Brott. Hey there, this is Positive Parenting, and I'm Armin Brott. Parents are more overwhelmed today than ever before. We're juggling demands on our time as well as conflicting advice from family and friends and frenemies and experts and the Internet, of course, on how to achieve parental perfection. In this part of today's show, we're going to be talking with a pediatrician who has seen this kind of parental anxiety up close, and she's going to be sharing a lot of great advice with us on how to cut through the confusion dial down the insecurities and the unhelpful advice, and simply do what countless parents around the world have done throughout history, respond to our little one's needs without overthinking, overstimulating, and overparenting. Our guest has had a fascinating life and a unique global perspective, and she's going to be talking to us about how the goal here is not to just be better caregivers, but happier and more balanced human beings. Here are just a few of the things we're going to be talking about. For example, children are strong and resilient unless parents teach them not to be. Picky eating is learned, not innate, and there is such a thing as being too careful. So bottom line, small changes can yield big results and can leave both parents and kids feeling more secure, more confident, and more connected. Hands can do incredible things. This is the sound of two hands helping to save a life. It's called hands-only CPR, and it's recommended by the American Heart Association. If an adult suddenly collapses, call 911, then push hard and fast in the center of their chest until help arrives. Hands can do incredible things, but nothing compares to using them to help save a life. For more information on this latest method of CPR, visit handsonlycpr.org today. A message from the American Heart Association and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott, and my guest for this part of today's show is Jane Scott, who is the author of The Confident Parent, A Pediatrician's Guide to Caring for Your Little One Without Losing Your Joy, Your Mind, or Yourself. Jane, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Armin. So I want you to start off a little bit by telling us about your background, which is is very unusual. I mean, people will pick up a little bit on the, the accent, but you've lived all over the place and have had a besides being a pediatrician, have had an uh, experience of seeing a lot of different people in a lot of different parenting situations. So give, give us an overview of your background. Certainly. Thank you. Um, well, I started my life, uh, interestingly enough, in Kenya, in East Africa. My family were international folk, um, basically um, uh, going from contract to contract, uh, with a civil engineering company based out of Britain. And so I lived in East Africa till I was about 10 and then uh, returned to England and uh, to Ireland and spent uh, several years, as a matter of fact, traveling uh, rapidly enough that I actually didn't even go to school, um, which... Uh, it's interesting, even so I ended up as a, uh, a physician. But uh, my parents were very much of the mindset that education wasn't just learned in the classroom. 
It was learned by meeting different people, living in different cultures, learning how to communicate in different languages, and uh, just generally operating uh, in that different way. Um, my high school was in uh, Hobart, Tasmania, and then I ended up in uh, Western Australia um, at, in a medical school. Um, it was a six-year program based on more of the British system. And uh, after four years, I was married and uh, uh, had a little bit of a shock. Kind of got, kind of got thrown out, didn't you? Sorry? You kind of got thrown out of the medical school, didn't you? Well, yes. Uh, not on the basis of lack of adequate performance, but on the basis of now I was a married woman. And my responsibility was not to be pursuing a medical degree, but rather um, being a wife and a mother. And... Um, <laughs> okay. What, yes. what are you going to do about that? <laughs> yeah. I, hopefully that isn't going on right now. But uh, over over the course of your living in different places, and then after that, you you ended up uh, back in uh, back in England, right? Or in South Africa? I'm sorry. I I did. Yeah. I I ended up. Uh, I was in England for a little while, and then in South Africa, and um, I was married to a geologist, and so I lived out in the deserts. Um, and raised my younger children actually in the deserts um, and then uh, finally got the chance to come to America. And why did I come? My, my husband actually was born in the States even though he grew up as a British citizen. And uh, so I, I ended up in Colorado where I oh. got the opportunity one, once again, but now with several children, to go back to medical school. And... Uh, Having lost my chance once, I <laughs> happily chose to uh, start again, and so I went to medical school with four children under seven at the age of 35. And so a, a little different, but yeah. I think, yeah. um, you know, uh, rich, rich, and actually I think in many ways um, quite an advantage when you go to to medical school, and I knew right away I wanted to become a, a, a neonatologist. Um, for some of your audience, that's the study of the sickest infants after birth. And uh, I, I found it to be extremely helpful to have had the experience of raising children in different cultures right. and having been through all these things myself. Well, tell us just a little bit about the differences as you saw them raising your kids in, in the approaches that parents have to raising their kids. And I'm, I'm wondering about this because it, there, you describe in the very beginning of the book a, a, an experience you had at a mattress store where there was a, a, little, a little kid who kind of got stuck on a mattress and wasn't sure how to get down. And his mother, rather than doing what you expected, which was to come over and, and rescue him, basically told him to turn around and get down himself, uh, which he did. And that you found unusual uh, because so many parents in so many places are, are jumping in to save their kids whether they need it or not. But what, what were some other differences that you saw? Um, I, I think that um, the biggest difference that I saw was such a more relaxed, atmosphere of raising children, um, very much uh, freer, freer in, in many countries, in many countries uh, where parents uh, didn't do the helicopter, uh, they, they watched their children, but often from afar. 
um, and uh, allow children to try try to do different things. And just as the example with the little one on the mattress, a parent or a nanny, uh, as was the case when I was in, in East Africa, uh, would call and just sort of give you give you a suggestion rather than run over and you know, support you and make sure you didn't fall. Um, so a lot of free play, which actually is turning out to be something that a lot of the, the modern children have very little access to, but studies are showing that it's incredibly important in the development of the child in terms of creativity, decision-making, um, learning how to uh, socialize with other children, um, to share, uh, and in fact, to be more careful in terms of risk-taking. Well, that plays nicely in with one of your themes, which is that there's a, a tremendous amount of what you might call paranoid parenting. There was a book a couple of years ago I interviewed the author uh, called that, Parent, Paranoid Parenting. And you know, there's so many things that we're worried about, and, and some, so much of it seems to be perpetuated by doctors or by the medical community, if you hope you don't mind my picking on them. But things like, you give an example of no honey for kids under, under six months or under a year because of a fear of botulism when that's an insignificant risk. It, it's true. Um, and I, I don't object at all to, to you mentioning doctors um, because I am one of them. And I think that uh, many of the young, especially the millennial um, parents, both moms and dads, um, have been exposed to such a lot of fear-mongering. And some of it is in the interest of safety, but I do think that many times the message gets taken too far. And, uh, you know, it, it, it um, relates to eating, eating habits, um, the peanut allergies and some of the other allergies that are becoming um, significantly on the rise uh, lately is thought to actually be because parents have become so concerned that if they would offer any type of nut products to the younger ch children that they're going to have some terrible allergies. And unfortunately, what's turning out to happen is because they have so little exposure in their early life as infants, they're actually having far more uh, allergies and serious allergies mm -hmm. than uh, previously or in other, in other countries. Right, because their immune systems aren't learning how to deal with minor things when they're sure. little. And so when they grow up a little bit, they, they have a, a, an over-the-top response. Correct. That's exactly right. So, but uh, but I'm kind of wondering. On, on the other hand, I mean, you you, meant, you give the statistical case that there's something like 80 to 100 cases of botulism a year, and that sounds like it might be a lot. But we've got four million babies born a year in the United States, so so 80 out of a, or 80 to 100 is is very very small. However, I could see somebody arguing, if you have an opportunity to completely eliminate risk, wouldn't you do it, or shouldn't you do it? I think I think the answer to that is if if you are really worried, um, it's okay to do it. It's it's honestly the magnitude of the multiple risks that parents are feeling like they have to negotiate. Uh, so if it was just a worry about honey, you know, 
um, and I wouldn't worry about it. But it's it's about so many different things that these parents are just almost, as you said, paranoid to make a decision or do anything. Um, they're, they're scared that they will do something wrong. Um, everything from the playgrounds to, uh, as, as we talked about, things about eating to having these children strapped into car seats now for extraordinary periods of time in the, in the name of safety. Right. And, and with that, some significant consequences. Talking with Jane Scott, who's the author of The Confident Parent, a pediatrician's guide to caring for your little one without losing your joy, your mind, or yourself. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to keep talking to Jane Scott about how you can become a more confident parent. I'm Armin Brott. You're listening to Positive Parenting. Maria Inez Phillips talks about not recycling. I've got too many newspapers and magazines and catalogs in there with plastic containers and bottles and cans. Your trash can is full of recyclables? No, it's full of trash. You say trash, Maria. I say rubbish. Whatever it is, I'm not going through it. I I just don't get it. Some things are very obvious, Maria. Learn the difference between trash and recycling and more. I put out way too much trash to think about recycling. Visit yougottobekidding.org today. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Broad. If you're just joining us, talking with Jane Scott, who's the author of The Confident Parent, A Pediatrician's Guide to Caring for Your Little One. I wanted to have you go on a little bit with, so we were talking about how botulism, you wouldn't worry about if it was just honey, but what are some of the other things that, uh, that parents are kind of convinced that they need to take these extraordinary steps to save their children? I think one of the most uh, concerning ones to me, Armin, is the uh, safety message that has gotten to parents about putting their babies on their tummies. Babies uh, really need to be on their tummies, uh, but parents have gotten the message that uh, in the interest of reducing the risk of sudden infant death, they need to raise their children almost exclusively on their backs. And the problem with that is that the babies are not getting any exposure to strengthen their neck muscles, their shoulders, their arms, and to protect themselves in that uh, forward-prone situation. Uh, with that uh, is coming a uh, developmental delays where the babies are hitting their milestones later. And they're not able to do some of the things that are incredibly important for developing right. that infant mind. Well, how do you how do you reconcile that one? I mean, I could see, okay, so you've got 80 or 100 cases of botulism. But from my understanding of this, uh, and I actually remember when this happened, it was sometime in the 90s, cause my, or the, the late 90s, my, my older kids who were born in 90 and 93, the prevailing wisdom was you put kids to sleep on their back. And for my youngest one, who's 13, it was you put them down on their face. And again, my understanding of this was that, that there was something like a 40% drop in SIDS. So that's not, that's not insignificant. But what you're talking about is that kids are not even allowed to spend any time on their face. C- correct. The parents have taken the message that it is just really, really dangerous and that babies, if they're turned onto their tummies, are, go- are perhaps going to die. And the, the problem here is not only now are they not getting exposure to a very important position, but 
the message that hasn't been transferred is babies don't just die awake, <laughs> supervised. They die when they're in deep sleep. So for them to be able to put their babies on their tummy and be there and have a fun time and supervise their babies, that is not a risk to the baby of sudden infant death. And uh, just, I hope, um, I can help shed some light on the uh, problem in that the number of children that are born in this country, as you alluded to, is about uh, just over 4 million a year, just in the United States. And of that, it used to be that about 4,500 infants, so 0.001 infants, were dying of sudden infant death syndrome. This is a tragedy. It's a tragedy even though in proportion to the number of children born, it's a very low number. It's one out of a thousand, roughly. Yes. Um, so the, uh, the children, um, when, when we said that 40% of the children were now saved, that meant that about 2,000 children were saved, but they still are losing 2,500 a year to unknown reasons, although some research is starting to suggest that there may be actually neurologic um, uh, problems going on with the baby where there may be a problem with one of the structures in the brain. Right. Uh, right. However, now we have an incidence of one in every two infants is having some um, aspect of uh, flathead syndrome. So we're talking about two million babies now having a new problem, a completely preventable problem. Flathead syndrome, is that a cosmetic thing? Or is it just, uh, I mean, is there some possible repercussions there? When, when the problem started to develop, as you said, um, in the late 90s, and the early 2000s, a lot of the information that was being sent out was, you know, it's just cosmetic, um, it'll go, and as soon as the baby sits up and does things, the head will straighten up. Unfortunately, it, it turned out to be much more significant than that, and so there's still a number of babies who are actually having to have intervention, which wow. usually is in the form of physical therapy or helmets, and there are some secondary problems medically that are now being recognized, including binocular vision problems, hearing, scoliosis, and certainly uh, some other things as well. Scoliosis? Talk about that one. Yeah. When, when the baby's head is turned preferentially to one side, which frequently happens when babies are strapped into a car seat or a stroller or a bouncer, they're at, on a reclining uh, angle, uh, they fall asleep. And with gravity, these little ones' heads will often drop to the side. And when that happens, the muscle on the side that they're turned towards is not needed to be as long, so it simply shortens. And they end up with a tight neck muscle. It's a medical term wow. called torticollis. So once these children end up um, with torticollis, their heads are fixed to one side on a tilt, which affects, of course, vision, and it also affects the way the muscles develop on either side of the body. So these poor little ones are, are totally asymmetric, being stronger and tighter on one side than the other side, affecting their balance right. and their walking 
and uh, the scoliosis is in compensation to that head turning ah, okay. to the side to try to get them upright. And so this, this is coming from spending too much time in car seats, or be, um, I want you to be real clear about where, where this is coming why this is happening. Sure. It, it's, it's really because they're being strapped into either one of the con uh, carriers, it's actually in the medical world starting to be called container syndrome because they're spending so much time strapped into these, uh, these carriers. So car seats, strollers, bouncers uh, are, are, the big, are the big three. Huh. And the average for babies under three months now is that uh, they're, they're sitting in, strapped in for up to 15 and 18 hours a day. Well, as you wow. can imagine, that's huge. Well, so the solution is to let them roll around on the rug more, or what, what would you suggest that people do? Because, you know, we're, we're moving so quickly. We're going here, we're going there. We've got this group and that group, and you know, I'm, I'm not making excuses, but I'm just saying that you know, the response you would hear from people is, well, what am I supposed to do? I have to bring my baby with me everywhere. I can't just put him on the floor. Sure, sure, and, and absolutely, and I'm very sensitive to we can't change all of our style of living. However, I, I really encourage uh, when the parents are actually working with the baby, holding the baby, they should be transferring them from one arm to the other so that the baby isn't preferentially going to the same position, turning their head towards the parent um, to one side all the time. So switching from side to side when the babies are in the cribs uh, or the pack and plays have them rotate so that the mm -hmm. head goes to one side or to the other side. So they're looking to different places. Yes, do some tummy time, even if it's just a few minutes. Right. The other thing that I think could be extremely helpful is I recognize the babies have to be in the car seat when they're traveling. But when they get to the other end, pick them up, take mm -hmm. them out. Don't have them just laying in car seats awake just yeah. because they're quiet and, and, you know, seem to be happy. They should get up on mommy's knee and, and move around. And, and then, of course, if possible, put them on a, on a little rug on the right. floor. And we only have just a minute left, but I want, I'm, I'm so fascinated by this. So would you make the same recommendation for, like, baby Bjorns and slings that parents wear on one side or the other that they should alternate sides? They need to alternate sides and do a lot of different positioning wherever possible because it takes no time for a baby to get a preferred position. And once they're comfortable there, of course, they keep wanting to go to the same place. Wow. I'm just, <laughs> just amazed by this. All right. Give, give us one more quick example of something that, uh, that people are too paranoid about. Again, we just have a, like a half a minute. I think people are too paranoid that, that they're raising their children in a, that the scariest world uh, when, in fact, it's actually the safest time children have ever been reared in the world, per se. Um, and the reason I believe that people are so nervous is because our media is you know, so incredibly capable and efficient of transmitting, you know, the, every single thing that happens that's bad for a child tends to become known to the whole world. Exactly. And so yeah. of necessity, they keep hearing about these terrible things that happen. Yeah, there are no more children who are kidnapped now than 
30 years ago or 40 years ago. You know. Precisely. So Jane Scott is the author of The Confident Parent, A Pediatrician's Guide to Caring for Your Little One Without Losing Your Joy, Your Mind, or Yourself, just filled with all sorts of fascinating information. Jane, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much. Green light. Hey, girl. School zone. I'm getting hungry. Car changing lanes. You want to meet me for pizza? Stop sign. Intersection clear. Yeah, street. Pizza sounds good. Ball in street? Girl in street! <gasps> it's hard to concentrate on two things at once, like texting and driving. Stop the text. Stop the wrecks. How will you stop texting and driving? Tell us at stoptextstoprex.org. Brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott, and it's time right this minute for a Parents at Play segment. It would be hard to find anyone these days who doesn't know about STEM, that's science, technology, engineering, and math, which are the skills that supposedly our children need to learn if they're going to become leaders of tomorrow. But many people, including everyone here at Parents at Play, believe that the arts, in all its many variations, are also critical skills, hence STEAM, which adds an A to the mix. If you've been searching for some great art-related activities to do with your family, look no further. We've got you covered. Fab Foil Nail Roller from Alex. Who would have thought that there'd be so many ways to decorate nails? With this kit, you attach a double-sided sticker to the nail, roll some foil onto the exposed side of the sticker, and you're ready to hit the town with nails a-shimmering. No nail polish needed, which is good news for people who have trouble with the smell, although you can add top coat to protect your manicure. Comes with 30 foil strips, a storage pouch, and instructions. It's for ages 8 and up. Cost under 22 bucks, and you can get more at alexbrands.com. I Do 3D Vertical from Redwood Ventures. This is one of the coolest things ever. Special photopolymer ink and the blue LED light that cures the ink on the spot allow you to draw 3D creations in real time, kind of like a 3D printer. Kits may include multiple pens, inks, a curing light, a plastic tracing sheet, and some special accessories to help your human printer mold especially complex objects. Of course, you can purchase extras of whatever you run out of. There's also a nice video of tips and tricks and project suggestions and even several free 3D art courses on their website. It's for ages 8 and up. Prices vary depending on how many pens and other supplies you get. You can get more information at idoo3dart.com. The Blaze Color Scroller from Alex. This is an art studio in a box. The centerpiece is a paper roll of 40 images of Blaze and the Monster Machines. That means no more single sheets of paper floating all over your car or living room. Finish one picture, just scroll ahead to the next, or if your kid wakes up in the middle of the night with a brilliant I-should-have-done-something-else idea, he or she can just scroll backwards a little bit. Comes with stickers and eight crayons, which store neatly in the pull-out drawer. For ages three and up, cost under 20 bucks... More information at alexbrands.com. Shrinky Dinks from Alex Brands. Shrinky Dinks have been around since the early 1970s, and they owe a great deal of their success to being easy and fun and giving kids and adults a great outlet for expressing their creativity. 
Today's Shrinky Dinks have succeeded in a way that many other brands have not. They've stayed true to their origins, but have also adapted to children's rapidly changing preferences. Shrinky Dink's Pets playset brings 21 of your favorite characters from the hit movie The Secret Life of Pets. Besides the animals themselves, this set includes enough paperboard pieces to construct your own playhouse to house them. Shrinky Dink's 3D butterfly lights adds in an element of light, although batteries aren't included, which will enhance the dozen or so butterflies. It and Shrinky Dink's 3D flower jewelry both include special molds that will help make ordinary flat Shrinky Dinks into dazzling 3D ones. It's for ages 8 and up. Prices vary. You can get it at your favorite retailer or alexbrands.com. You can get reviews of a lot more toys and games to play with your family at our website, parentsatplay.com. We'll be back next week with another segment for you. Hey, but you know what the story is. Don't go anywhere right now because there's more positive parenting coming right up. More with Mr. Dad, Armin Brat, after this, from the MrDad.com radio network. In 1977, in Johannesburg, South Africa, an eight-year-old boy picked up the game of golf from his father. By the age of nine, he was already outplaying him. The odds of that same boy then making it to the U.S. and European pro golf tours? One in seven million. The odds of the Big Easy winning the Open Championship once and the U.S. Open Championship twice? One in 780 million. The odds of this professional golfer having a child diagnosed with autism? One in 110. Ernie Els encourages you to learn the signs of autism at AutismSpeaks.org. Early diagnosis can make a lifetime of difference. Autism Speaks. It's time to listen. Brought to you by Autism Speaks and the Ad Council. Now, get ready for more positive parenting with Armin Brandt from the MrDad.com radio network. This is the second part of today's Positive Parenting Show. Thanks for staying with us. I'm Armin Brott. Great parenting is not about memorizing a set of rules. It's more like skillfully speaking a language. With plenty of practice, fluent speakers internalize a set of principles and are then able to craft their language to suit the moment and their purpose. Like speaking a language, parenting is a skill that can be improved through learning and practice. So when we combine some general principles based on research with our own moment-to-moment awareness, we can be most prepared for the parenting challenges that come our way. And as we all know, there are parenting challenges coming our way every single day, no matter how old your kids are. In this part of today's show, we're going to be talking with a psychologist and parent educator about that very special point where research and moment-to-moment awareness meet. And that research piece is something that all too often gets left out of the whole thing. The truth is that good research helps us get clear on what really works with kids and what doesn't so that we don't accidentally get misled by ideas or theories that seem like good ideas at the time, but really aren't. I'm Armin Brott, 
we'll start talking about the art and science of parenting. So you might want to go grab a pencil here in just a second so you can start writing down some of these wonderful strategies about what works, what doesn't work, and what great parents do to be great parents. It's Practical Poly Radio. I've switched to cooking with healthier oils. So now what do I do with all these tubs of lard? Skinny jeans feeling too tight, a bit of lard on your hips and thighs, and those pants slide on like a dream. So there's no need for that lard to go to waste. But get your best heart-healthy trade-up with healthier oils, like canola, olive, or other vegetable oils, which can actually lower your chances for heart disease. Learn more at heart.org slash face the fats. Canola Info is the national supporter of the American Heart Association's Face the Fats campaign. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott, and my guest for this part of today's show is Erica Reicher, who's the author of What Great Parents Do, 75 Simple Strategies for Raising Kids Who Thrive. Erica, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Armin. So 75 things. I mean, how do yeah. you narrow it down? I, mean, I know you do parent workshops, and, and you had a thing that was like 10 things, right? which is, seems to be short for a book. Uh-huh. I guess. So <laughs> how do you decide 75 as opposed to 120? Because, you know. Right. It is great, kind of an arbitrary number. Stuff, yeah. True, true. Well, I didn't set out to make it 75. That was that that title, subtitle came afterward, after I settled on the 75. So I just started with the ones, I started with the 10 from the original workshop. And then I started thinking about what are the other things that I think are really important for parents to know and the things that I have something meaningful to say and that would be useful to people. And I just kept going until it got to be about 75. And the ones that I thought of afterward just didn't seem on the same level of importance or usefulness. Um, and at that point, the book was right around 200 pages, so it seemed like that's it's a good time good, to good stop. Good place to yeah. stop. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I, I, it wasn't like I had that number in mind uh, okay. in advance. All right. And one of the things I like about this, and uh, people who have heard the show know will know this about me, that I, I'm kind of research obsessed, and good. I just want to hear what the data says. Not that that's the be all and the end all, because sometimes there's really crappy data that doesn't say True. anything that's worthwhile or says wrong-headed yeah. stuff. Right which I guess is awfully presumptuous to say that I only like the data that I like. Yeah. But <laughs> that's good data. That's bad. That's right. That's exactly it. So <laughs> right. there's, there's studies about how many people do that, I'm sure. But so what do you, how, how did you decide or make a, a mix between the practical stuff, which you talk about as awareness that we're, we're all looking at, and then the actual what the data says? Yeah, well, I was trying to do a mix, as you said, because I wanted to be able to use science and research as the foundation for the principles or practices that I was proposing to parents. Um, But then every time I wanted to be able to translate those ideas or insights into, well, what can you do with that? Or what does that look like? So when, you know, we're all familiar or many of us are familiar with the idea of we want to have a strong attachment with our kids. We want to have a strong emotional connection. Great. How do you actually do that in your day-to-day life, right? We're all busy. We're trying to get the kids out the door. We're often trying to get to work. We have to, you know, do it all over again the next day. Um, And so my real goal there was to give bite-sized summaries of the most useful information about the art and science of parenting and then really translate that into um, how-to. So I wanted to give sample scripts about what would this look like if, as if you were looking over the shoulder of someone who was a skillful parent. What do they say? How do they say it? What do they do? How do they respond? So there are scenarios, each of the 75 uh, strategies, and I should say, even though the book is 200 pages, 
each strategy, each of the 75 is on average one or two pages each. That's it. So it is very bite-sized. The shortest one is maybe four or five pages at most, and the shortest one is one paragraph. But on average, it's just one or two pages. So I, uh, it's it's the kind of book that you can read in very short uh, bites um, mm-hmm. and when you don't have a lot of time. And still, the idea is to pick up some useful ideas that you can use right away. And people will flip through the book and find the ones that feel most relevant to them. Mm-hmm. All right. So how do you define great parent? Or you, right. you said looking over the shoulder of a skillful parent. I mean, how right. are you defining that? Wow. Well, I think the book is an, an answer to that question. But the short answer, I guess I would say, I have to preface this idea of what is well, a great no, Nobody's going to be good at all of those things. True. Right? So people will have their, their it's areas true. where they're stronger. It's true. And one of the things that I say explicitly in the book is great parents make mistakes. So I want to say that at the outset. This is not about being a perfect parent by any means. Nobody is a perfect parent, and least of all me. <laughs> so it's to be expected that we will make mistakes. And and I think one of the, one of the points I want to make in the book is that we should, in a sense, embrace that because when we as parents make mistakes, it gives us the opportunity to model for our kids what to do when they make a mistake. How do we take responsibility for our feelings, for our actions? How do we act with integrity? How do we make amends, right? So when we make a mistake as a parent, especially if our children see it or if it's a mistake with them, then that can be a good thing and we can turn it into a learning opportunity. The only caveat to that really is if we keep making the same mistake again and again and again, Mm -hmm. then we need to uh, pay a little bit more attention and maybe seek support from friends or professionals. Right. So let's get back to the other part of this. we got the research part, so the the awareness part, because that's been something that I have struggled, I guess, with over the years on, on my own, but also having a lot of interviews, doing a lot of interviews, having people come in or on the phone, whatever, that so much good advice is out there. But there's this hang-up or this delay that happens between, okay, I just read this thing. Right. Or I just heard this thing on the radio and it was really cool. And then restraining yourself from jumping in and doing what you always do. Right. How do you gain that extra three seconds or whatever I it think is that, of that, Yeah, I talk about that. Um, so I think... A couple things. You have to think kind of the long term and the short term. In the long term, if you aren't practicing good self-care, um, what I mean by that is getting enough sleep for what you need, eating well, getting exercise, doing things that you find um, important to you that are relaxing, rejuvenating, you're going to be behind the eight ball when it comes to having patience and the ability to kind of hold back from your autopilot responses Um, Sleep is probably the most important one of those, and I talk (laughs) about the importance of sleep both for parents and also because we're focused on kids in the book, also for kids. It's it's vitally important, and there's a a pretty direct correlation between um, whether or not we're getting enough quality and quantity sleep and our ability to control our impulses, which is what happens when we, for example, yell, right? Oftentimes, it's not that yelling is always a bad thing, but... A lot of times we're yelling and it's not really necessary. And in fact, it makes the situation worse. And it's because we weren't able to pause and reflect about how should I respond in this situation in a way that's going to be the most constructive and it's going to move me toward the goals that I have for what should be happening. (laughs) Right. So before we jump into some of these, I want to talk about a lot of the specifics in here. We're not going to get to all 75, but give, give me your sense of what are some things that we think we know that we don't know. As parents? Yeah, I mean, you know, um, okay, from, well, from from research. I mean, yeah. there's there's one you give in the book, and I, we've talked about this a lot on the show, well, uh-huh. is the praise thing. Oh, yes. Oh, right. you're the best. Oh, that's the most wonderful thing I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. And th- th- that that turns out to have the exact opposite effect. Right. That is a really good example. That's a great example of, you know, a lot of times our common sense serves us very well as parents, and we should generally, you know, use that as one input to what we're going to do. But 
in the case of praise is a really good example. Sometimes it leads us completely in the wrong direction. And so when we praise our kids, to your point, for being smart or talented, it can create what's called a fixed mindset where they get really attached to hearing those words. It feels really good. And it backfires in the sense that it can make them risk averse and less willing to try new things or make mistakes. And mistakes are the foundation for learning and growth. So we want to be sure that when we use praise as a way of encouraging our kids to do things, we're using it in a way that doesn't undermine those goals. So we want to be very specific and much more focused on the process than the outcome. So their hard work, their persistence, their getting up, you know, off the proverbial horse that they just fell off right, and trying right. again. Yeah. And, you know, the thing is when you, when you hear that and you think about it, it actually makes sense. Yeah. That if you keep telling somebody that they're great, mm-hmm. that the natural thing is that they want to keep hearing that they're great. Yeah. And so if they have a choice between doing something easy I mean, it's like this. Uh, Carol Dweck is somebody exactly. who did the, the studies the about the, the best math. known for that, right? Yeah, that you know, it makes sense, right? You keep saying, "Oh, you're so smart," right? Well, yeah, you're going to want to keep doing stuff that keeps making people say you're so smart, as yep. opposed to you work hard, right? Which, right, there's nothing wrong with that, or right. there's everything right with that. Yes, but yeah, okay. I think it makes sense after someone explains it to you. But I think it made a lot of sense to those parents, you know, during the um, self-esteem movement. Um, who it, it, it makes sense to say, you're so great, you're so smart, I want to build up your self-esteem, I want to build up your confidence. It, it does make sense, except when you hear the research, then you say, oh, now I hmm. see how that could backfire. So yeah. what was going on with those people then? I mean, I suppose you know, they had to come yeah. up with a new wave of thought, but the whole self-esteem movement about everybody, get, everybody gets a trophy, which yes. has been on the war path about yeah. for a long time. I think that probably came from a place of, of, you know, I always talk about a lot of the parenting mistakes that we all make still come from a place of love and good intentions and we just aren't realizing the downside or the negative side effects of what we're doing and that's a theme of the book that I talk about a lot is um, in the book I call it focusing near and far and it's this idea that we need to balance what I call the short game of parenting and the long game of parenting so the short game of parenting is you know problem solving those challenging behaviors or um, you know those moments when our kids aren't listening they're not cooperating they're whining they're tantruming they're ignoring us you know all those things that keep us from getting through the day um, and it's the reason a lot of people read these books or go to workshops or consult parenting coaches. But the long game of parenting, which um, we think about, I think, less often is the idea that we want to raise kids who are kind and happy and confident and participate in society in a meaningful way. And we want to have a good relationship with them, a relationship that's based on mutual trust and mutual respect. And a lot of times in our day-to-day rush of you know the hectic, uh, our hectic lives as parents and families, we forget the long-term implications of what we're doing, right? And so we do things just to try to get through the day and through that moment to solve that problem without realizing we're creating bigger problems. So that's, you know, you know, helicopter parenting might be one good example of that. That's mm-hmm. been discussed a lot where sure. we fix things for kids and we intervene for kids and we bring their lunch when they forget it and their homework when they forget it and we help them with this and we, we do things for them or we try to fix their feelings um, or intervene in situations and it doesn't give them the chance on one hand to learn how to address those situations for themselves. So they're not learning kind of practical coping skills of how to handle mm-hmm. challenges that will come up in their lives forever. We yeah. all have them. And on the emotional side, they're not learning emotional coping skills, how to manage the feelings that come up when we're in one of those challenging situations, disappointment, rejection, failure, discomfort. Talking with Erica Reicher, who's the author of What Great Parents Do, 75 Simple Strategies for Raising Kids Who Thrive. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, keep talking to Erica. I'm the only one in school that can tie his own shoes. Most kids make fun of me because I still believe in the tooth fairy. A third of the kids in my eighth grade class drink alcohol regularly. Over 99% of my class has been offered illegal drugs. 
Half of my college classmates binge drink, abuse drugs, or do both. But the frequent dinners I had with my family have helped make sure I'm not one of them. Learn more about the National Center on Addiction and Substance Abuse at Columbia University's Family Day at casafamilyday.org. Dinner makes a difference. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. If you're just joining us, I'm talking with Erica Reicher, and she's the author of What Great Parents Do, 75 Simple Strategies for Raising Kids Who Thrive. I want to start talking about some of the 75 things. But before we get to some some ones that I'll pull out here, what was the one that, as you're going through this, I'm sure there were many discoveries you thought, well, i got to try that. Uh What was the the biggest one that you discovered for your Mm. your own parenting? That's a good question. Well, if I were able to kind of go back and, you know, record my thought process, I might come up with a different answer for you. But the one that's coming to mind right now is the importance of sleep for kids and for parents. And so, you know, we tend to underestimate, I think, the amount of sleep our kids need, especially as they get older. And they're resisting the idea of being asleep. If we have older kids, preteens and teenagers, you know, they're wanting to be busy with friends. And sometimes they're busy with homework and extracurriculars. But it is so important that parents protect sleep. I would say that's probably the most important thing. One of the most important things you can do for your kids is make sure they're getting enough sleep. So for kids, depending on the age of your kids, it's probably more than you think. Teenagers on average need at least nine hours of sleep. Very few of them are getting that much sleep. (laughs) Can you believe that? Um, Well, yeah. yeah, Anybody who's got a teenager living at their house will agree to that. Yeah, Yeah, and teenagers will resist that. So it's not an easy thing, but it it affects, you know, brains are developing. It's It's an important period of brain growth and development. And it's really important to protect that for your child's yeah. well-being. So you start off with one that I think is, is such an important one for, in so many different areas. But good parents do what they say, or yeah, do what they say they're going to yeah, do. That's number one. Yeah, <laughs> right. And th- it, intuitively, it makes sense. You do what you say you're going to do. But are yeah. you talking about when you make a promise? Yes. Or are you talking about when you threaten something? Yes. Okay. Yeah, although I don't like to use the word threaten. I like to call it um, giving a consequence or giving a preview of a consequence. Okay. Because, um, you know, threats to my mind are different from giving a consequence. Threats are usually done in a really aggressive, forceful way. Oftentimes you back down from the threat. Um, oftentimes threats are manipulative. Whereas a good consequence, and I talk about in the book, it's number 51, um, are different. Consequences are best given when they are um, proportionate to the offense, not to your level of frustration, right? Right. In the same way that if you, you know, so if your child does something that's just kind of a, you know, please don't do this and they do it anyway, you know, you don't have to ground them for a year (laughs) for that just because you're really frustrated. Right. Um, So so the idea here is that, um, well, a threat and a consequence are different. But, yes, so it's important to do what you say you're going to do because that builds trust and it builds respect. And that's a cornerstone Mm -hmm. of a very good relationship with your kids. And it's really the relationship that counts almost more than anything else. When you focus on building a good relationship where you're on one hand uh, very firm and you have really clear and reasonable rules and boundaries that you enforce consistently and matter-of-factly. And then on the other hand, you have a very warm emotional connection with your kids. I think that's really the... um, the, the sweet spot of parenting is being able to maintain an emotional connection while you're also still needing necessarily to discipline your kids on occasion. Yeah. Where do you think clarity fits in here? Mm-hmm. And, and I'm thinking of that because I've been having this ongoing series of conversations with a friend of mine 
about language and the way that we use it. And there's there's often this big disconnect between you know thinking about doing what you say you're going to do, but you say something, you know, go to bed. Mm-hmm. So I mean, get your butt in bed, Close turn your the lights and off, <laughs> and go to sleep. <laughs> right. So my 13 year old, and this is the same thing with the older kids too. It she says, oh, that just means. Get, get in bed. my bed. <laughs> it doesn't mean I can't take my phone right. and my iPad and everything else right. in there with me. And, you know, you realize that yes. there's a lot of language. I mean, I think that, you know, in in good humans probably, but good parents in particular, would probably need to be very clear about what they're saying yes. and make sure that what's being heard is what's being said. Absolutely. I think that's true in, in any of our communication, but especially if we're going to be taking action on it. You know, it's it's not really fair or reasonable to then give a consequence for a kid where you weren't clear about what your expectations were and there's room for interpretation. And if you have, you know, a savvy kid or a teenager, they're going to be looking for those little <laughs> yeah, wiggle well, room. Oh, oh, you didn't, I didn't know you meant that. <laughs> I'm in bed, see? Yeah. I mean, I get used <laughs> to the whole clean up your room thing. I, I, I totally understand what that means. For me, it yeah. means just sweep the stuff under the rug but right. for other people it may mean you know something exactly. something else yes yeah, so it's important to be specific yeah. true define your terms so we talked about treating your kids with respect consideration and kindness but go mm-hmm. into some uh, some a little bit more specifics there about how that's a very broad thing well I think that that touches on a lot of different issues you know um, the idea of modeling the kind of behavior you want our kids to have you know our kids are always watching and listening to us and learning from what we do and what we don't do and it's not probably going to work out to have an expectation that your children will say, for example, please and thank you to you and to others if you if aren't you using, if you aren't saying that to them. Yeah. And so, you know, it does not at all undermine our authority to say, please do this or thank you for doing that. It, in fact, um, is sustaining to the relationship and it shows that we uh, value the importance of polite communication and and. It's what we expect. And kids that are raised in a household where the adults, the parents, the caregivers are saying please and thank you as an example will tend to do that too because it's part of how you talk to people. Mm-hmm. So it's a very easy way of teaching kids the kind of behavior you want to see by behaving that way with them. It's probably the easiest way as opposed to yeah. telling or teaching. So good parents practice self-control yeah. or encourage self-control you talked about. Mm-hmm. What kind of self-control do you mean? Well, um, I think the basic idea here is that we need to let our kids, on one hand, experience, you know, that that uncomfortable feeling when there's something that they want and they can't have it right away, right? Uh, It can be hard for kids to do that. It's hard for adults to do that. It's certainly hard for us to watch our kids, you know. And we also like to make our kids, you know, lives delightful. So, you know, when we can gratify a a desire or um, do something for them, you know, right away that they would love. It's fun to do that. On the other hand, it's important for kids to learn, you know, to practice patience and to learn how to defer gratification. Self-control is very uh, related to children's ability to to achieve, their ability to um, think about goals from a long-term perspective. Sure. Yeah. Um, so, but it's not the kind of um, it's not the kind of thing that you can force kids to learn. It's the kind of thing you have to finesse instead of force. Yeah. Well, that, so, that was the, the line. I was, I've been reading about these marshmallow studies okay, you know, right, from yes. long ago, uh-huh. which just for those who don't know, the, the researchers had these kids and, and they gave them basically put a marshmallow on the table and they said, you can have one now or right. if you wait a minute or however long it was, five minutes, I think, yeah. you can have two. Yes. And so there were the kids who could and the kids when they're four, the kids who could basically and the kids who couldn't. 
And they had all, some of them who could had all these coping strategies. They were imagining it was inside of a frame. And yeah, they were distracting themselves. Yeah, right. and, uh-huh. and but it, uh-huh. what was interesting was that the guy who was doing the research or his team, they didn't think anything special, but they went back 40 yeah. years later and they saw that the kids who could exercise self-control were exact, doing exactly what you're saying. They were more successful in life in, uh-huh. in almost every measurable area. Uh-huh. And what they had trouble with, though, was can you teach that or not? right. And is like so, you know? Can we? I mean, you can. You yeah, can give I don't your kids think some you coping strategies, but se. does that mean future yeah. success is guaranteed? I think it's something that you cultivate, right? Um, you know, I think some kids temperamentally have a greater ability to exercise self-control at certain points in their lives than other kids. But it's important not to compare your kid with other kids, but look at where they are developmentally and help them cultivate what they are capable of. So one way that we can help kids cultivate or grow their capacity for self-control is to let them play a lot. And I talk about this both under the um, the subject of protecting playtime, but also um, on the section on self-control, which is that when kids are playing games that they want to play, there's usually a goal for a game, right? You know, we're going to play teacher. So if you're going to be um, the teacher, then I'm the student. There's certain behaviors I have to do because I'm not the teacher. I'm the student. And there's, you know, so I have to inhibit the desire to do certain things. Or if we're taking turns. Mm-hmm. So when children are playing in the service of a goal that they themselves have kind of put out there is what they want for that moment, it gives them some of the earliest exercises in self-control because they're motivated to suppress certain behaviors or desires in, so that they can participate in the game. So, so playing actually is a really great thing to do with your kids, um, watching them play, playing with them, but being careful not to force too much, right? If it's not going well, just that's okay because it's practice, right? Practice is really the thing that kids need to do in order to be able to flex that muscle and get it stronger. All right. So besides sleep, uh-huh. what if you had to sum up everything into Ooh. one thing? Of course, I hate that kind of a question, right? Because we've got 75. But generally speaking, what, what would the advice be? Mm-hmm. Is it like well, I think it's what I said earlier. Um, make sure that you maintain a warm and loving emotional connection with your kids. You show an interest in what they're doing. You respect their reality. You respect their feelings. You respect their different way of being in the world and feeling in the world. Mm-hmm. On one hand, and on the other hand, make sure that you're being very clear and specific about what your household rules are, what your family values are, and why they are that way, and be clear about how you will enforce those rules. So it's finding the sweet spot or balance between being firm um, and having high standards for your children's behavior on one hand and having a loving, close relationship with them on the other. And those two things together um, will help, I think, any parent be more successful. Erica Reicher, the author of What Great Parents Do, 75 Simple Strategies for Raising Kids Who Thrive. Thanks for coming in. Thank you, Armin. Is there a website, by the way? Yes, you can go to my website to get more information about the book. It's uh, drericar.com, so D-R-E-R-I-C-A-R. Okay, sounds almost like a palindrome. A little bit, (laughs) a lot of R's. Yeah, all right, thanks. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Positive Parenting. You can get more information on today's show and what we're working on in the weeks ahead at MrDad.com. While you're there, visit the MrDad.com gift shop with everything you need to help you become the dad or mom you want to be. Positive Parenting is a production of the MrDad.com radio network. Now, go be a great parent.